This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. What's up, my friends? I don't know how it is where you are, but summer is in full effect here in the Pacific Northwest, and it is hot. Of course, in my opinion, anything over 85 is a travesty, so maybe that's not saying much. Today, I'm sipping on some nice cold lemonade, and I plan to share my thoughts on Stephen Rowley's The Celebrants, Will Dean's The Last One, Nicholas DiDamasio's The Gay Best Friend, and the book everyone is talking about, it seems, and has been for a while, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. But before we jump into the reviews, let's look at what's new to bookshelves this week. First on my list is Camp Damascus by Chuck Tingle. This is a searing and earnest horror debut about the demons the queer community faces in America, the price of keeping secrets, and finding the courage to burn it all down. I will definitely be checking that one out. Next is Sinners of Starlight City by Annika Scott, or Anika Scott. This is a gripping historical drama about a woman determined to avenge the crimes against her family set at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. Then we have Tropicalia by Harold Rogers. In the heady days before a New Year's Eve party on the bustling sands of Brazil's Copacabana Beach, a family reckons with the matriarch's long-awaited return, causing old secrets to come to light in this infectiously vibrant debut that explores the heartbreak and hope of what it means to be from two homes, two people, and two worlds. Next is History's Angel by Anjum Hassan, or Anjum Hassan, A-N-J-U-M-H-A-S-A-N. The story of a middle-aged man in contemporary India discovering that neither his life nor his country are as stable as he thought. Then we have Every Rising Sun by Jamila Ahmed. In this riveting take on 1001 Nights, Shaharazad, at the center of her own story, uses wit and political mastery to navigate opulent palaces brimming with treachery and the perils of the Third Crusade as her Persian homeland teeters on the brink of destruction. Then we have The Bitter Past by Bruce Borges, the first in a compelling series set in the high desert of Nevada featuring Sheriff Porter Beck. Oh, Porter. Then we have Meet Me at the Wedding by Georgia Tofolo, or Tofolo, T-O-F-F-O-L-O. Lily loves living in Hawks Cove and planning her best friend's wedding at the Hawksbury Estate as the icing on the cake. But when the estate's owner dies and his son cancels the wedding, Lily must face Henry Hawksbury, a man she hasn't seen since that fateful night ten years ago. Next is The Work Wife by Alison B. Hart. Three fierce women connected to a billionaire film mogul collide at a Hollywood party in this richly observed novel about female ambition, complicity, and privilege. Then we have The Women of the Post by Joshunda Sanders. 
an emotional story based on true events about the all-black battalion of the Women's Army Corps who found purpose, solidarity, and lifelong friendship in their mission of sorting over one million pieces of mail for the U.S. Army. Then we have How Can I Help You by Laura Sims, described as a compulsive and unforgettable novel of razor-sharp suspense about two local librarians whose lives become dangerously intertwined. Then we have Queen Wallace by C.J. Carey, the thrilling sequel to Widowland, a feminist dystopian novel set in an alternative history that terrifyingly imagines what a British alliance with Germany would look like if the Nazis had won World War II. Then we have A Twisted Love Story by Samantha Downing, a reckless, delicious thriller about a young couple that gives a whole new meaning to the dangers of modern dating. Then we have Silver Nitrate by Silvia Moreno-Garcia, a fabulous meld of Mexican horror movies and Nazi occultism, a dark thriller about the curse that haunts a legendary lost film and awakens one woman's hidden powers. Then we have Strange Sally Diamond by Liz Nugent, a wickedly dark, twisted, and brilliantly observed new novel about an enigmatic woman confronting her unknown past. Then we have The Block Party by Jamie Day. The residents of the exclusive cul-de-sac on Alton Road are entangled in a web of secrets and scandal utterly unknown to the outside world, and even to each other. Then we have The Summer Girl by L. Kennedy. College student Cassie Soule hasn't spent an entire summer in Avalon Bay in years, not since her parents divorced and her mother spitefully whisked her away to Boston. Now that her grandmother is selling the Boardwalk Hotel that's been in the family for five decades, Cassie returns to the quaint beach town to spend time with family, ring in her 21st birthday, and maybe find herself a summer fling. Next is All That's Left to Say by Emery Lord, a poignant and powerful story of a grieving girl willing to risk everything. Next is Under This Forgetful Sky by Lauren Yero. This futuristic star-crossed love story follows two teens in a darkly unequal world struggling to find their place. Next is A Guide to the Dark by Miriam Matui. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's spelled M-E-T-O-U-I. The Haunting of Hill House meets Nina LaCour in this paranormal mystery young adult about the ghosts we carry with us. Next is The Third Daughter by Adrian Tooley. A sweeping YA fantasy about legacy, betrayal, sisterhood, and politicizing emotion in the quest for power, all balanced by a slow burn LGBTQ romance. And last on the list is I'm Not Here to Make Friends by Andrew Yang. A fun, frothy, incisive YA debut following two teens and their unforgettable summer on a reality TV show. This week, I pre-ordered Camp Damascus and The Women of the Post, and I'm interested in How Can I Help You? Librarians in Danger is a trope I've not read, and I'm really intrigued by it. I'm also interested in Silver Nitrate. This week, I received an arc of Dreambound by Dan Frey, courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. I also bought copies of A Tale of Two Princes by Eric Guerin, The Long Run by James Acker, Boyfriend Material by Alexis Hall, and The Quiet Tenant by Clements Michelon, or Michelon, M-I-C-H-A-L-L-O-N. So that's what's new to my shelves and new to shelves in bookstores this week. How about we check out the reviews? Let's kick things off with Stephen Rowley's The Celebrants. This book was first published by G.P. Putnam Sons on May 30th, 2023, and it was the Read with Jenna book club pick for June. The synopsis reads, It's been a minute, or five years, since Jordan Vargas last saw his college friends and 28 years since their graduation when their adult lives officially began. 
Now Jordan, Jordy, Naomi, Craig, and Mariel find themselves at the brink of a new decade, with all the responsibilities of adulthood, yet no closer to having their lives figured out, though not for a lack of trying. Over the years, they've reunited in Big Sur to honor a decades-old pact to throw each other living funerals, celebrations to remind themselves that life is worth living, that their lives mean something to one another, if not to themselves. But this reunion is different. They're not gathered as they were to bolster Mariel as her marriage crumbled, to lift Naomi after her parents died, or to intervene when Craig pleaded guilty to our fraud. This time, Jordan is sitting on a secret that will upend their pact. A deeply honest tribute to the growing pains of selfhood and the people who keep us going, coupled with Stephen Rowley's signature humor and heart, The Celebrants is a moving tale about the faults and vincibility of youth and the beautiful ways in which friendship helps us celebrate our lives, even amid the deepest challenges of living. This year, I've read so many books that focused on chosen families and friendships, and they've made me reflect on how thankful and lucky I am to have the friends that I do. I can totally see my friends and I doing something like the friends in this book. In this case, Naomi, Craig, Mariel, Jordan, and Jordy, and Jordan and Jordy are a gay couple, aka the Jordans, they all made a pact before they left college that if any of them ever felt alone or that they were struggling, they could call on the others and they would all drop what they were doing and meet up for a living funeral for the one who was struggling. This was all prompted when one of their friends died before graduation, and they wondered at the time of his death if that friend knew how much they meant to the others. The idea of the pact was that the friend who's struggling or feeling down would sit and listen to the friends talk about how much they mean to them to hopefully lift them back up. The pact was Muriel's idea. She's the first to invoke it after divorcing from her husband. All she's ever known is how to be a wife and mother. She's lost. She needs her friends to pick her up. Then the next is Naomi. She needs her friends after her parents die in a plane crash. And then there's Craig, who calls on his friends after he's convicted of a crime and has to do prison time. Then years pass without the pact being invoked again. But when one of the Jordans has a recurrence of cancer, this time advanced to where they're unlikely to live, the pact is again invoked. I really connected with several of these characters, and I could see not only myself, but several of my friends in them. I think the one character that I had the most trouble connecting with was Naomi. At the beginning of the book, I thought she was awful. She was a controlling bitch of a person. But then as the book progressed and I got to know her, I understood why she was that way. I also saw her growth and I really warmed up to her by the book's end. I also connected with them because they were all around my age. I understand where they were in life and what they'd gone through. I also really connected with the fact that as we move into our 40s and 50s, we still really don't have life figured out. Even though when we're younger, we think that we'll definitely be more settled by now. Yeah, word to you youngins, that never happens. By your late 30s, you'll start to realize that life's just about moving forward and trying to keep your head above water. Just deal with the shit as it's thrown at you and just keep moving. Make the most of it. Last week, I reviewed Lauren Chamberlain's book, Who We Are Now, which was another wonderful book about friendship. In that review, I mentioned that I wished I'd gotten to know the friends when they were all in college so I could understand their bond better. Both that book and this book open at the end of the friend's college years, but I never felt as though it took me a while to settle into this friend group, like it was last time. With the celebrants, Rowley does a great job of flashing back to college events and moments that define the group's friendship, so I felt as though I had a good handle on what brought them together in college and then what strengthened their friendship over the years. 
This was a quick read for me. I finished it in two sittings. It's one I would definitely recommend to fellow Gen Xers. After reading The Gunkel earlier this year and now this book, Rowley has earned a spot as an autobuy author for me. I immediately went and snagged copies of Lucy and the Octopus and the editor once I finished this one, and added them to my never-ending pile of books to read. I gave this one four and a half stars. Rounded up to five on Goodreads. Now let's chat about The Last One by Will Dean. I received an advanced reader's copy of this book courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. This book will be published in the U.S. by Atria on August 8, 2023. The synopsis reads, When Kaz steps on board the exclusive cruise liner RMS Atlantica, it's the start of a vacation of a lifetime with her new love, Pete. On their first night, they explore the ship, eat, dance, make friends. But when Kaz wakes the next morning, Pete is missing. And when she walks out into the corridor, all the cabin doors are open. To her horror, she soon realizes that the ship is completely empty. No passengers, no crew, nobody but her. The Atlantica is steaming into the Mid-Atlantic and Kaz is the only person on board. But that's just the beginning of the terrifying journey she finds herself trapped on in this white-knuckled mystery. This is going to be a tough one to review because so much craziness happens in this book and I don't want to give it away. There are so many twists and turns, and I don't want to ruin the fun, so bear with me, I'll do my best. First of all, you need to go into this one willing to suspend disbelief. It's imperative that you let go of that annoying little voice that insists you stay grounded in reality. You'll enjoy this so much more if you do. If you insist on picking apart every little thing, you're probably going to hate this book. Now, the basic premise is Carolina, or Kaz as she's called, and her newish boyfriend Pete have boarded a state-of-the-art luxury liner in England. They are making a cross-Atlantic trek to the U.S. for some much-needed R&R. They have a lovely first night together on the ship, but then the next day, Kaz awakens to find that Peter is not in bed. She gets dressed, steps out to look for him, and finds that the halls are empty. All of the doors are open. No one is in any of the dining rooms, the decks are empty, and to make matters worse, no one is steering the ship. She's alone in the middle of the friggin' Atlantic Ocean, hurtling toward God knows where. I mean, can you imagine? For someone like me who is terrified of getting on a cruise ship in the first place, this was my worst nightmare realized. Being lost at sea, be it on a raft or a luxury liner, is not something I have on my bucket list. Between Jaws and Titanic, I am forever afraid of the ocean. There are far too many nibbly, bitey, chompy things that you have to worry about on top of the big fear, drowning. Then again, I don't know what's worse, drowning or being nibbled to death. Neither of those things sounds fun. Anyway, Kaz soon finds three other people on the ship. None of them know what the fuck's happening. How could hundreds of passengers just vanish? Why can't they stop the ship? Where the hell are they? Everything they do to try to contact help goes awry, and when the power goes out and their access to the food supply is lost, they know their days are numbered. Now, that's all I'm going to say about the plot, because this is definitely one that needs to be read. The book is filled with all kinds of crazy twists, as I mentioned earlier. I found myself gasping out loud frequently. Once I started, I couldn't put this one down. I'm glad I chose this as a vacation read because waiting to finish work so I could get back to it would have been torture. I can also say that the end made me scream holy shit so loud I'm sure I woke up my neighbors. Poor Kaz is put through the ringer. 
I've read books where the author puts their main characters through some shit, but this one pretty much takes the cake. If you prefer a more character-driven novel, this probably isn't for you. I cared for the characters well enough, but what kept me reading was the crazy plot twists and a need to find out how or if these people would ever get off this damn boat. The chapters are short, which I loved. The action is nonstop. I would recommend this one to anyone who likes a fun, fast-paced thriller. Buckle up, dive in, and then thank me later. I gave it four and a quarter stars on my blog and on Storygraph, and four stars on Goodreads. All right, let's take a quick break. Now, let's look at The Gay Best Friend by Nicholas DiDemizio. This book was first published on May 30th, 2023 by Sourcebooks. The synopsis reads, He's always been the token gay best friend. Now, stuck between a warring bride and groom hurtling toward their one perfect day, he's finally ready to focus on something new, himself. Dominic Marino has become an expert at code-switching between the hyper-masculine and ultra-feminine worlds of his two soon-to-be-wed best friends. But this summer, reeling from his own failed engagement and tasked with attending their bachelor and bachelorette parties, he's anxious over having to play both sides. The pressure is on. The bride wants Dom to keep things clean. The groom wants Dom to let loose with the guys. And Dom just wants to get out of this whole mess with his friendships intact. But once the rowdy groomsmen show up at the beach house, including a surprise visit from the groom's old frat brother, handsome and charming PGA star Bucky Graham, chaos and unexpected romance quickly ensues. By the time Dom returns for the bachelorette party, he's accumulated a laundry list of secrets that threaten to destroy everything, from the wedding, to Bucky's career, to the one thing Dom hasn't been paying nearly enough attention to lately, his own life. I've mentioned several times on this podcast that I'm not really one for romantic comedies. I've had a really difficult time connecting with the characters over the last several years, so I've stayed away from them mostly. The thing is, though, as I'm thinking about it, most of the rom-coms that I've read as of late were about straight romances. haven't read many LGBTQ plus romances, if any at all, and I think maybe that's where the issue lied. I just needed a little man-on-man lovin' to rekindle my interest in the genre. Happy to say, broke the curse with this book. I used to read a lot of romances, or books with romance as a theme, when I was younger. I loved the Sweet Valley High series, even smuggled a few Sweet Dreams romances here and there from the library. But this was back in the 80s and 90s. We didn't have queer books back then. As I've grown older and been in several same-sex relationships myself, I guess my reading interests have shifted. Anyway, all that to say, The Gay Best Friend was exactly what I needed to get myself out of a very long anti-rom-com slump. Had I not made it a goal to read several LGBTQA books in June, I probably never would have found this gem. The main character of the book is Dominic. He's a 30-something man from New York who was recently dumped by his fiance. While canceling all of the reservations they'd made for their upcoming nuptials, he is also serving as best man in the wedding of his two best friends, Patrick and Kate. Dom and Patrick grew up together. Despite a lull in their friendship in college, they've remained close. Patrick grew up rich, and Dom was kind of his surrogate brother, letting Dom tag along with he and his family to their beach house in Mystic, Connecticut. Dom is serving as Patrick's best man, so he's in charge of the bachelor party, Now, Kate insists that Dom needs to keep an eye on Patrick and report back to her if Patrick does anything questionable. 
Dom has a pretty chill weekend planned, but two of Patrick's frat brothers decide to spice things up with some strippers, and this puts Dom in an awkward position. Kate will flip the fuck out if she knows strippers were involved. And to add to the mix, Bucky, one of Patrick's frat brothers and a current pro golfer, shows up and much to Dom's surprise, he isn't as straight as everyone thinks he is. Flash forward a few weeks to Kate's bachelorette party, which Dominic is also invited to. This is when things get really interesting. Bucky's girlfriend is also in attendance, as is the wife of the frat brother who ordered the strippers. Dom is a holder of a lot of secrets, and when they start trickling out, he just might burst under pressure, threatening the happily ever after of his two BFFs. To say I loved this book would be an understatement. I went into it expecting that I'd probably feel like it was just okay, and then I ended up not wanting it to end. I totally understood where Dominic was coming from. I have a lot of straight friends, and there have been times in my life where I found myself making sure I didn't talk about too much gay stuff in front of my straight gay guy friends. And then there have been times when I feel like I'm expected to perform as the funny, snarky, catty gay for some of my female friends. I've definitely felt the pressure to play the token gay that everyone saw in Jack on Will and Grace. It can be exhausting. I've also had a couple of Buckies in my life. Men who are so deeply in the closet and terrified to come out. They love everything about you in private, but won't even think of talking to you in public. On one hand, I get it, but on the other hand, it gets exhausting after a while. I initially bought an ebook copy of this book, but ended up loving it so much I bought a physical copy to keep on my shelves. I'll definitely be going back to revisit this one again very soon. I really did enjoy it that much. I gave it a solid 5 out of 5 stars on my blog, Goodreads, and Storygraph. Okay, it's time to talk about some dragons. I'm going to close out with my thoughts on the book that is taking social media by storm, Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. This book was first published on May 2nd, 2023 by Entangled Publishing. The synopsis reads, 20-year-old Violet Sorengale was supposed to enter the scribe quadrant, living a quiet life among books and history. Now, the commanding general, also known as our toughest Talon's mother, has ordered Violet to join the hundreds of candidates striving to become the elite of Navarre, dragon riders. But when you're smaller than everyone else and your body is brittle, death is only a heartbeat away, because dragons don't bond to fragile humans, they incinerate them. With fewer dragons willing to bond than cadets, most would kill Violet to better their own chances of success. The rest would kill her just for being her mother's daughter, like Zayden Royerson, the most powerful and ruthless wing leader in the Rider's Quadrant. She'll need every edge her wits can give her just to see the next sunrise. Yet with every day that passes, the war outside grows more deadly, the kingdom's protective wards are failing, and the death toll continues to rise. Even worse, Violet begins to suspect leadership is hiding a terrible secret. Friends, enemies, lovers. Everyone at Bazgith War College has an agenda, because once you enter, there are only two ways out. Graduate or die. This book has been all over my Instagram for the last couple of months. People couldn't seem to get enough of it. And because the book was about a college for dragon riders and it was the it book of the moment, I had to have it. Honestly, I probably would have wanted it simply for the dragon rider college element, but there you go. I saw several people posting pictures of the book with sprayed edges that had dragons on it, and I knew I had to have a physical copy because, hello, dragons. The problem was it was sold out and had a month-long wait list. 
So I did what any self-respecting bibliophile with extreme FOMO would do. I bought the ebook and ordered a physical copy. At least that way I could start reading it ASAP. Of course, it would be another three weeks or so before I actually got to the book, but whatevs. Finally read it, and while I really enjoyed the book, there were a few things that slowed it down for me. For those of you who have not heard of this book, it focuses on a 20-year-old woman named Violet Swarengale who was about to start college. She is the daughter of a scribe and a writer. Scribes are basically keepers of history, and writers are dragon riders who protect the kingdom. Her father, the scribe, died recently, and her mother is a high-ranking general for the writers. Violet's mother was super sick when she was pregnant with Violet, which led Violet to be born with a few things that work against her. She's small, she's frail, her ligaments tear easily, she's pale, her hair is brown but tipped with silver. Violet's frailty would better suit her to a life as a scribe, but her mother insists she becomes a writer like her older brother, who was recently killed in battle, and her older sister. So Violet heads to the writer quadrant where everything seems to be working against her. This quadrant is dangerous. Very few make it out alive. Some die while trying to navigate the treacherous obstacle courses that are part of their training, while others are killed by their fellow classmates, and others still by the dragons they're supposed to bond with. If a dragon finds you unworthy, it will smoke your ass and turn you to a pile of ashes simply because you look stupid. So Violet is not only trying to make it through her training and hopefully bond with a dragon, but to make matters worse, Violet is assigned to the fourth wing with a young man named Xander whose father was murdered by Violet's mother because his father was a traitor. Violet is definitely attracted to Xander, but he's dangerous, and she's certain he would love nothing more than to kill her to get revenge on her mother. There's also something weird going on with the daily battle briefings from around the kingdom. The wards, which are protective shields, have been failing and dangerous enemies have been wiping out villages, but these things aren't being reported. Is it because they are classified or because there's something questionable going on? Now, I don't read a whole lot of fantasy simply because I have a really hard time remembering the names of factions and magical races and villages and countries and which creatures are good, which are bad, who speaks what language, blah blah blah. It's a bit of an issue for me because I really enjoy dragons and magic and big expansive worlds. Just a bit too much for my brain so it takes me a while to settle in. I watched Game of Thrones when it first started. I'm not at all embarrassed to say I had no fucking idea who anyone was or what was going on. It was enough to keep me interested, but there was a definite disconnect. Now before the final season aired, I decided to go back and watch it again from the beginning, and the second time around, everything clicked and it was so much better. That said, the names of not only the people, I mean, why are names in fantasy novels always so damned hard to pronounce? But also the villages and the basic geography had me a little confused here, but it wasn't enough to deter me. I'm going to start by calling out a few things that bug me, then we'll get into what I loved. First of all, there were so many raised eyebrows in this book. Can we get some other facial expressions, please? Also, this book was full of one of my biggest pet peeves, and it's something so many authors do. I hate when they write, she could taste the bile in her throat or she threw up bile. Girl, if you are tasting bile, there is something seriously wrong with you. Bile is made in the liver, not the stomach. This is not normal if you're tasting bile. You need to go to see a doctor really quick because there's a serious blockage or something going on. Medicine isn't going to fix it. My other annoyance was the angsty romance. 
I mean, I get it. People love romance. I like a little here and there as well. The problem I had with the romance between Violet and Zayden was that it all felt very repetitive. It felt as though I kept reading the same internal thoughts over and over and over. The same dialogue over and over and over. After a while, I was like, girl, I get it. He makes you horny. You're afraid he wants you dead. You shouldn't be with him. Noted. Yeah, he sounds hot. I'd get on that D too if he'd let me. But you're literally repeating yourself. I didn't need paragraphs of angst in every chapter to remind me of this. Aside from that, I really love the idea of a dragon riding college. I love the action. I especially liked it once the students began the process of bonding with their dragons and then working toward finding out which magical powers their dragon would pass on to them. The battle scenes were breathtaking. I love the plot twists that were thrown on all over. I'm definitely looking forward to the finale, which releases in November. And yes, I have already pre-ordered my copy, so I will not have to wait for it. To sum it up, I love the overall story, the dragons, and the action. Could have done without all the repetitive angsty romance, though. I gave this one four stars. That's all I have for you today. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, Back Where We Belong. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and Aaron, my co-host, and I revisit favorite movies and music from the 80s and 90s. Perfect for all of my fellow Gen Xers. Also, if you haven't already, come find me over on Instagram. My handle is at justreaditalreadypod. I post bookish stuff pretty much daily over there. Be sure to join me next week when I review Skyla Arndt's Together We Rot, Bart Yates' The Language of Love and Loss, Holly Smale's Cassandra in Reverse, and Brian D. Kennedy's A Little Bit Country. Have a good week. <laughs>